0: You can grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and as you turn there, I was thinking about what to talk about this morning. My mind was directed to think about our body and the needs of our body, and I couldn't help but wonder if perhaps there are some who are struggling, some who feel like they're just doing okay spiritually. Perhaps life has been full of trials lately and it has you feeling discouraged, Or maybe the zeal and the passion that you once had to pursue your relationship with the Lord has waned. Or perhaps you were once involved in ministry and gospel furtherance, and now you have digressed to just being a church spectator. Now, lest we be tempted to think about some poor soul out there going through this, I think if we're honest, all of us can relate to some degree. We all struggle. We all go through spiritual lows. We all struggle with our zeal for the Lord or our our passion to pursue our relationship with Him. And friend, if you're discouraged, if you are disheartened, if you're looking for something to pick you back up and put you on your feet, then please tune in to the text here this morning. Second Timothy was written to Timothy, Paul's apostle, or sorry, Paul's apprentice. He was really his most cared for and loved disciple. In fact, if you open to 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 1, we see this already right out of the gates, when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and then in verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved son, my beloved son, Timothy wasn't Paul's biological son, but he was his spiritual adopted son, and Paul loved and cared for him dearly. If you look at verse 3 of chapter 1 this continues Paul says I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly constantly remember you Timothy in my prayers day and night longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy Paul loved Timothy he had trained him up in the faith and greatly cared for him Now prior to this letter being written Timothy had been Paul's itinerant pastor Uh, Paul had sent him to Thessalonica, to Philippi, to Corinth. And as a result of Timothy's tested faithfulness, Paul had extreme confidence in him. In fact, listen to how Paul describes Timothy in Philippians chapter 2. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare." For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. So it's clear that Paul loved Timothy. He cared for him. He had confidence in him. And his plan for Timothy now was to plant long-term roots in the city of Ephesus to pastor the people of God there. However, in the midst of this, several trials had come up. Soon, Timothy found himself in a situation similar to the one that I mentioned a moment ago. Discouraged, beaten down, timid. Timothy was being attacked as a younger man. People were teaching false doctrines. They were attacking him personally, and eventually they were leaving the church altogether. Therefore, it's fitting that Paul would write this second letter to Timothy to follow up the first, and this letter is a letter of encouragement and exhortation to press on. In fact, you're still in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, just by the very fact, friends, here that Paul is exhorting Timothy not to be timid and not to be ashamed, likely indicates that Timothy was timid at times. He was ashamed at times. Therefore, Paul's goal in writing to Timothy is to stir about courage and to remind Timothy of the power and the strength that is found in God. And that brings us to our text in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Follow along as I read verses 1-7. to 7. He says, "...you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything." Now, just to continue to build the background and the context for this passage, at the end of chapter 1, Paul gives a couple of commands for Timothy to follow. In verse 13, he says, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me. In verse 14, he says, guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then in 15 to 18, he gives a positive example and a negative example of those who have really done that, who have followed uh, Paul's teaching. Uh, in the way of the Lord. The negative example is all those in Asia who had turned away from him, verse 15. But the positive example in 16 to 18 is Ananias, who had not been ashamed and had been a great encouragement to Paul himself. Therefore, in light of this, in light of the negative example and the positive example, Paul is now honing in on Timothy, starting a new unit in chapter 2, and he says, Therefore you, my son, you must be strong. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul said he himself had not been ashamed. In verse 16, he said, Anisiphorus had not been ashamed. And now it was Timothy's turn to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy was to be strong, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1. But I want to ask a question. Where was this strength to come from? Timothy was to endure these trials well and to do so, he would need strength. But was he just supposed to dig down deep within and find some sort of hidden strength? No, that's not what Paul says, is it? Paul says to be strong or be strengthened in the grace of Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting here is that this is an imperative. It is a command to be strong, which is not surprising if you read the rest of Second Timothy. It's full of imperative verbs. Paul, writing through the Holy Spirit, uh, wrote instructions for Timothy to follow that likewise we are to follow and adhere to. But what's also interesting about this verb, be strong, in verse 1, is that it's a passive. In other words, it wasn't to be done by Timothy. Even in the parsing of the verb itself, there's the indication that Timothy did not have the ability to carry this out on his own the strength to continue, to persevere, to rise up in the midst of trials, wasn't to come from within. It was to come from Jesus Christ. So whether we translate this as be strong or be strengthened, the following clause defines how this occurs when it says, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And friends, I think this is so practical to us right here and right now. Again, who has not struggled spiritually? Who has not had some doubts and been kicked around by sin? We all have. But it's important to consider that our response should not be to be discouraged. It shouldn't be to give up. It's not even to just dig down deep within and get her done. No, rather it is to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We desperately need the Lord's strength, not our own. And this verse tells us that God gives his grace to endure that which he has asked us, asked us to endure just as he did to Timothy. Now, before getting too far down the line, there is an important assumption that's being made here. And the assumption is this. The assumption is that the person is in Christ Jesus. Now, in Christ is a common phrase in Scripture that refers to those who have placed their faith in Jesus and have therefore been bonded in unity to God the Father and God the Son by the Spirit in Christ is another way of explaining what it means to know Christ or to be saved by Christ or simply to be a believer. So the strength that is to be drawn from Christ is only for those who are in Christ. But friends, for the believer, there is tremendous encouragement found here in this verse. There are spiritual resources that I fear are too often untapped for the believer. The grace that is found in Jesus, it is a sanctifying grace. In addition to being a saving grace, listen to Romans chapter six, verse six. He says, "Paul says again, knowing this, our old self was done away, crucified with him, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin." And then verse seven: "For he who has died is freed from sin." Here, Paul explains that Christ has left sin powerless for the believer. It is from the riches of His grace, therefore, that we can not only battle sin, but we can successfully battle sin. We can conquer sin. Titus 2, in like manner, speaks of sanctifying grace, or God's grace as it applies to the believer for the Christian life. Titus 2, verse 11, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And so there we do see the salvific aspect of the grace of God. But verse 12, catch this, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, it is the grace of God that teaches believers how to say no to sin and how to say yes to obedience. And so from these passages, we see that God's grace is both the means and the motivator for obedience in the Christian life. And if we return now to 2 Timothy chapter 2, in like manner, Paul is calling Timothy to be strengthened by the grace of God, not referring to salvation, but referring to his Christian life and referring to sanctification. Timothy needed God's grace to live in a godly way and to endure difficulty. Now, in the midst of these difficulties, Paul's instructing Timothy to be strong. And by the way, Paul's about to die. Okay, he knows it. He's no longer on house arrest, but now he's in a dark, cold dungeon cell waiting his execution. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4, six, he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the, my time of departure has come. Therefore, the weight and the seriousness of this letter to Timothy could not have hit him harder. He's in a sense expected to carry the baton of the Christian faith. He's expected to continue the gospel ministry that Jesus had passed on to Paul that was now being passed on to him. And to do so, Timothy would need to be strong. But again, I want to ask, how does this happen? Is this some mystical experience where one's emotions are flipped upside down and all of a sudden there's this newfound desire to be strong and pursue the Lord? Well, maybe, but probably not. More likely is the fact that in addition to verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul is going to follow this up with some additional commands that Timothy could do to put himself in a position to receive the grace of God. There are things Christians can do to receive the grace of God. Again, not salvific grace, not for salvation, but for sanctification. In fact, listen to a few. James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble. 2 Peter 3, 16, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4:16 Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. 1 Corinthians 15:10 Paul says, "But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me." And friends, it's of this same accord that Paul is instructing Timothy in the following four analogies to put himself in a position to receive the grace of God. So following verse 1, the command to be strengthened by the grace in Christ, the second command is now in verse 2, which is also crucial to Timothy's success as a gospel minister. Look at verse 2. He says, The things which you have heard from me, In the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And this really begins the series of four analogies that Paul is going to lay out to help Timothy carry out his gospel ministry and to help him to be strong. While Timothy is to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ, he is also to teach or entrust the gospel ministry to others, just as he had been taught and entrusted in. In other words, Timothy was to be a teacher, Now, this word entrust in verse 2 is also used in verse 14 when it says, guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you, and it, it can mean deposit, and it really brings to my mind the idea of an investor, making an investment in something for the long term. So the idea here is that Timothy was to invest in people, okay? But how and what? What was he to invest in others? Timothy may have said, and you may say even now, well, I don't feel like I personally have that much to offer, in and of myself at least. What what can I invest in people? Well, I think verse 14 of chapter 1 gives us that answer when it says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And this treasure was nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus is Lord and that he has conquered sin. Timothy was to invest in people by teaching them the gospel and all that scripture has to say pertaining to life and godliness. You see, teachers are always looking to the next generation. They're always looking to the future. And in the same way, then, Paul is passing the baton to Timothy to pass on the Christian faith to others as well. And friends, this baton is handed to us. This verse really cannot be overemphasized. In fact, I want us to pause for a moment and just reflect on this for application's sake. We as Christians are called to this same ministry. We are called to make disciples in this same way. So men, I just want to ask and challenge, are you investing in younger men? Are you teaching them the scriptures? Are you teaching them to obey? As Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Women, this verse doesn't exclude you either. This verse is not merely directed toward training pastors or just men. Actually, the word used here that's often translated within faithful men is a generic term for mankind. It's a gender-neutral term. But further, elsewhere from Scripture, we can see direct commands for women to teach younger women. So I want to challenge and ask, are you teaching younger women what it looks like to be a godly woman, a godly wife, a godly mother, a Titus 2 or Proverbs 31 type woman. This, friends, is the mandate that we all have from this verse. In fact, within this verse, we see not one, not two, not three, but four generations of gospel ministry. You've got Paul teaching Timothy, who was to teach faithful men who would teach others also. And somewhere down the line, we have been a product of this gospel succession. Therefore, are we going to be the ones where the buck stops? Are we going to be the dead end or the weak link? Think for a moment with me. Jesus began his ministry with 12 men, and from those 12 men, the entire Christian church has stemmed. Now, God in his sovereignty has chosen to use man as his instruments of furthering the gospel, and you and I are part of that. Now, I want you to imagine if every Christian in the world and in Grace Bible Church decided no more ministry. I'm not sharing the gospel. I'm not discipling or investing in anyone else. Hypothetically speaking, how long would it take for this church and the church as a whole to die out? One generation. It would take one generation because the means that God has employed in furthering the gospel is you and I, is people. People. Now, friends, believe me, I I, I believe and trust in the sovereignty of God, but there is an aspect in which the church and the furtherance of the church is dependent upon us to train up faithful men, to train up faithful women, to train up gospel ministers. Therefore, we must be faithful to obey our part in this. And further, we get the privilege to be a part of this. We get the blessed privilege to be a mouthpiece for the God of the universe, (laughs) Now, is this intimidating? You bet, right? Maybe you feel, well, I can't do that. I don't know how to disciple someone. Well, good. Then perhaps you're right where Timothy was. Don't forget the context. Timothy is scared. He's timid. He's being attacked by older men. Perhaps he fears man. Therefore, that's why Paul is encouraging him in verse 1 to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This strength was not to come from within himself, and just in the same way, it's not to come from within ourself, but it is to come from Christ. Christ gives grace and he gives strength to do that which he has asked. It's no coincidence that verse 2 follows verse 1 because in order to carry out verse 2, he would need the grace of God. And so, by the grace that is in Christ, Timothy was to be a teacher or an investor in others. He was to teach that which he had been taught, or in other words, he was to have a successive perspective, one that viewed the future of those who would succeed him. And following this, Paul is going to continue the analogies for the Christian life. Look at verse 3. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So now here in addition to a successive perspective, Paul is now calling Timothy to have a vertical perspective. With the command in verse 1 to be strong in mind, it's almost expected that something difficult was going to come his way. And I think in verse 3, we have that something difficult. Paul says, Timothy, you must have a vertical perspective, like a good soldier who desires to please his master, even unto suffering. And again, friends, is this easy to do on one's own? Is this even possible to do on one's own? To suffer for the sake of another, one whom Timothy and we have never even seen face to face that being the person of Jesus Christ. No, I would say this isn't easy and likely not even possible. Therefore, how much more important is the command in verse 1 to be strong or to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ? By, By the grace of God, saints have suffered tremendous things down through the centuries of church history. If you start with the 12 apostles and track it up to today, people have suffered tremendously unto death, by the grace of God and for God's glory. And friends, this is really something that we cannot avoid as Christians. Just within 2 Timothy alone, three times Paul calls Timothy to suffer. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, join with me in suffering. Here in chapter 2, verse 3, and then again in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. But friends, I want to encourage you just for a moment as a little rabbit trail, just encourage you about the result of suffering as believers. Suffering produces assurance of salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1. As you go through trials, you realize your faith is legitimate. Suffering produces longing for heaven. Suffering produces reliance upon God. Suffering strengthens faith. Suffering can really be summarized by saying this. God wastes no suffering for the Christian. In fact, Romans 8.28 tells us so. It says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All of it is used for the ultimate good of bringing glory to God's name. Now, this wasn't going to be easy for Timothy, just like it won't be easy for us, but God will provide the grace in time of need so that his beloved ones can endure suffering. Now, the analogy being used in verses 3 and 4 is that of a soldier. Look again at verse 4. He says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment a soldier on the battlefield, in the midst of a battle, feels a buzz in his pocket. And upon feeling the buzz in his pocket, he retreats to his bunker and bunkers down and pulls out his phone to check his latest Facebook update. Okay, it's ridiculous, I know. Or in a similar manner, imagine a soldier is on the battlefield and he drops to a knee and begins to send an email to his friend to set up a workout time and lunch in two weeks from then. Right? These two examples are ridiculous. They're absurd in a sense. And yet, that's the point. That Paul is making, right? We know that soldiers are completely focused on the task at hand. No distractions. Further, soldiers are trained to obey their commander on the first time with maximum effort in as timely manner as possible. And what a picture this is for the Christian life, right? In the same way, Jesus has employed us as ambassadors for him, in a sense, as soldiers for him, And the truth that Paul is communicating here is that the servant of the Lord must have a vertical perspective. In other words, his desire must be to please God, not those around him. Just like the soldier's aim is to please the enlisting commander, so ours is to please our enlisting commander, which is Jesus Christ. People around us and the worldly material things may sway us toward caring more about things of this life, more than about Jesus Christ. And just as ridiculous as the soldier checking his Facebook or emailing someone, so it is ridiculous for the Christian to be sidetracked with the things of everyday life, the things that are of the world and not of heaven. Now, this isn't to say that we don't partake in the things of everyday life. We must do that. But the Christian's primary mission is to serve the Lord fully committed to pleasing him. And friends, catch this. There are no reserves in the Christian faith. Only active-duty soldiers. Therefore, this applies to every single one of us who claims to be a Christian. Now, this verse, these two verses also assume something. At the base of this, it assumes that there is a love for Jesus. You see, one's love for Jesus must be greater than one's love for the world, or else everything I'm saying is just going to be gibberish, Unless there's a love for Christ that exceeds all other love, then none of this makes any sense. But friends, where there is a love for Christ, then suffering through trials as a good soldier of Jesus, although hard, it brings about grace and strength. Okay? Suffering as a good soldier of Jesus brings about grace and strength in the believer's life. Just ask someone who suffered. Therefore, here's the takeaway, we must keep our, vertically, our, our perspective set vertically on God, not on the busyness of life around us. And in so doing, as we do this, grace and strength will be supplied. Verse 5 gives the third analogy. He says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he ap- competes according to the rules. Now, as a former athlete, I so appreciate and enjoy the athletic imagery in Scripture. And here now, Paul is teaching Timothy the truth that he must have an athletic perspective as he goes through life. In the first century, a Greek man may choose to compete in the games, the athletic games. And to do so, he would need to stand before a statue of Zeus and vow that he would train for 10 months leading up to the event. So from that point forward, he would devote himself to physical training for his event. He would train and train and train, with, all the while with a, an eye at the prize that he was striving for, the crown at the end. And I think the first takeaway from this analogy is simple. The Christian life requires athlete-like discipline. It requires putting one's mind and one's will to the task at hand and working It requires the athlete-based discipline toward godliness that we see in 1 Timothy 4, 7. And such is the lifestyle of an athlete, discipline, and such must be the lifestyle of the Christian. In addition, though, not only did they have to swear, back in this day, to 10 months of training, but they also had to compete according to the rules or they were disqualified. If an athlete cheated during a competition, he would be disqualified. And of course, this is a principle that we are familiar with today, You have to compete according to the rules within the given game. And so, friends, similarly, as we trek through the Christian life, there may be chances to cut corners, to justify our wrongs by the good that we do. Oh, God won't care if I slip up here because I serve in the children's ministry. Or, oh, it's okay if I treat my coworker harshly because I disciple two or three other people on the side over here. No, friends, this is what Paul is warning against here. He is warning Timothy and likewise us to not be double-minded, but instead to obey God's word in our lives. To summarize this verse, Paul is calling Timothy to a life of integrity. And although an athlete may train and train and train, if he cheats during the competition, it's all for naught. He's disqualified himself and really wasted that time. The Christian, therefore, likewise, must have a submissive perspective in life toward God and his word. Right, And as Christians, we we seek to obey God. We seek to obey God doing that which is right and hopefully with the right motive behind it because God sees right through our heart's motives. However, when we do do that which is right and when we do have a, a proper motive behind it, there is blessing that comes from obedience. Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word and obey it. And following the flow of this passage then, one major boost for Timothy in the midst of trials, in the midst of struggles, would be to continue to be obedient to the word of God, just like the athlete must be obedient to the rules of the game. Obedience, friends, brings about blessing. Not necessarily material blessing, but spiritual Blessing. Another way to say this then would be that obedience brings about grace. It brings about the grace of God. Grace and strength are added to the obedient Christian. And so the athlete, he trains, he trains, he competes according to the rules. And in addition to these characteristics, we know that an athlete's eyes are set on the prize. And in the same way that the soldier longs for the victory and the athlete longs for the prize. So now we get to verse 6. With the farmer. The hardworking farmer, Paul says, ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now, the farmer, perhaps even more so, must be focused on the end result of the fruit that is to come. Right? The athlete competes uh, and, and trains hard and wants to win, but there's still great benefit for an athlete who wins second or third. Discipline, endurance, perhaps teamwork. Friends, for the farmer, the end is the only goal. There's no A for effort in farming. The end is the only goal. All the success is wrapped up in the harvest. Now, if you think about the life of a farmer, a few characteristics should come to mind. And first, we know that farmers are workers. This, this verse addresses the hard-working farmer. The, promise, the promises of The joy of the harvest do not apply to the lazy farmer, just like they don't apply to the lazy Christian. The farmer and the Christian alike must be hard workers, right? We know farmers work early and long hours, constant toil, sun up to sun down, oftentimes even more than that. A farmer therefore must be prepared to work at any hour. And in the same way, the Christian must be a worker He must not be lazy and watch the harvest come and go, but he must be diligent to work for the Lord of the harvest. There are early and long hours in the Christian life, early mornings of prayer, long days of being a faithful witness, prepared to work at any hour, the random phone call at night of someone who needs your help. Or perhaps you're coming back from a trip on the plane and you just want to rest and Someone sits next to you and says, oh, what Christian book are you reading? Right? The Christian must be prepared to work at any hour. Secondly, though, we know that farmers are waiters, and not waiters like a restaurant waiter, but in other words, they are patient. Farming is very slow progress. The planting process begins in early spring or winter and goes all the way. The harvest is not seen until the end of summer or fall. Often at least half a year of toil before any harvest is seen. Progress is slow. In addition, there are regular disappointments, uncontrollable scenarios that the farmer has to deal with. Right, The weather, frost, pests, disease, the health of the crop, perhaps even the farmer's own health. The mark, though, of a good farmer is one who can roll with the punches, who can endure even in the midst of hard times. In like manner, then, the Christian must be patient with progress, right? People are people. They don't always fit a program or a system just like we would like. Therefore, sometimes it will seem like one step forward and two steps back. So the Christian, then, friends, must be urgent with his efforts, but patient with the outcome. Just like the farmer is. The Christian also must be able to endure regular disappointments. If you've been a believer for any length of time, then you have incurred disappointment. Right? That person that seemed so faithful, so consistent for so many years, suddenly departs from the faith. Or the young person who you've been working with is taking such good steps in the right direction, and then they go and they do that. Right, And so the mark of a Christian must be, yes, to be a hard worker, but also to be patient with the outcome. And as we've mentioned, for the farmer, everything culminates in the end harvest. And what is true about a farmer in the end harvest? Well, verse 6 says that he ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. And I couldn't help but think about, um, I grew up here in the valley with my mom and stepdad, but my grandparents were potato farmers in southern Idaho, And I remember growing up, many times in the afternoon, Grandma would take us to the spud cellar, and we would open up the big doors. And as a little kid, you're just shocked by this mound of spuds that seems to go forever back into the cellar. So, of course, we'd go scrambling up the pile of potatoes and pick out the coolest shaped one or the biggest one, and we'd bring them home and cook them up and eat them for dinner. Now, what's interesting, looking back, is that not one time do I ever remember grandma buying potatoes from the store. Why would she? Right? They've put in the years and years of effort, or at least for that year, the months of effort to harvest that crop. Therefore, why would the farmer not take from it first and then sell the rest? Well, such is the principle that Paul is communicating here when he says the farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crop. And likewise, I want to add one passage in here, and then we'll draw some conclusions. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul's talking about him and Apollos' role as servants of the Lord, and in verse 6 he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians, is using this farming analogy. And I think the illustration of the farmer in general is so helpful for the Christian life. Friends, we may not see the harvest. We may not live to see the harvest of our efforts. And that what I mean by harvest is people coming to know the Lord. Right? That's the goal of gospel ministry, is people coming to know Jesus Jonah witnessed an entire city get saved. Jeremiah didn't witness a single convert. So the harvest may not be witnessed by you on earth, but I assure you, God is at work and there will be a harvest. And from these passages, both 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Timothy, we see that we play a crucial part in that. We are the planters and the waterers, and ultimately God causes the growth, but we play an important role in this. And so in any scenario, I think that the key perspective takeaway is this, the Christian must have an eternal perspective. The Christian must have an eternal perspective. His or her her eyes must be set on the harvest that is to come, set on the life beyond this life and on people's souls. Now, some may say that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, and while this is a bit of an overstatement, there is a nugget of truth in here. Our mission here is to represent the Lord and glorify Him by being and making disciples. However, this cannot be done just sitting around and looking to the future. This is not a passive command. We don't just sit around and wait for Jesus to come or for us to die. We must labor. We must labor. We must work. We, we don't want to be those who are so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But in the, same, in the same breath, as we labor, as we serve the Lord, we've got to have our eyes set on the end. We must have an eternal perspective in our efforts. Therefore, believers' aim must be on the coming harvest. And as one adopts the mindset, here's the key, as one adopts the mindset of the farmer, grace and strength will be added to the faithful believer. To close, Paul says in verse 7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There's been a lot packed in here. Four analogies within seven verses. And Timothy would need to spend some time thinking about this in order to get it right. And just as a side note, do you notice here this verse assumes that there's a correct interpretation and an incorrect interpretation of Scripture? If not, Paul could have said, Eh, Interpret this however you want and apply it however you want. But that's not what he said. He said, consider this, what I've said, and the Lord will give you understanding. There's a right way and a wrong way to interpret this. And so it takes time to think through something, think through scripture, particularly this, with a biblical mindset, arriving at a biblical interpretation, and then from that, a biblical application in our life. In other words, understanding what has been said and then understanding how it applies in our life. And so in the same way, friends, I want to encourage you to think on this today, to think about the spiritual truths that have been communicated from God to his people this Sunday morning and then how they would apply to our lives. God wants us to use our minds to think about not only what has been said, but how it applies to our lives. And this is a serious matter. It's a matter worth considering, worth taking the time to think on and arrive at some conclusions. It's not all fun and games every day. It's not every day is a holiday and every meal is a picnic. But it's a, it's a serious battle. And in fact, as one commentator said, the Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. With that in mind, then, I want to just take a moment to review this and then give us a moment to reflect before leading us in prayer What we've seen here is that Paul has given a command for Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This strength wasn't to come from himself, but was to come from God himself. Now, in light of this, there are a few things that he could do to add grace to his life, that God would supply grace to his life as he did these things. In verse 2, he's to have a successive perspective, that of a teacher. In verses 3 and 4, The analogy of the soldier communicates that we are to have a submissive perspective toward God. In verse 5, the analogy of the athlete communicates that we are to have an obedient perspective. And in verse 6, the analogy of the farmer, we are to have an eternal perspective. These perspectives from these analogies will supply grace and strength as the believer employs them in his life or her life. And so, friends, I want to bow our heads now and reflect on this. Timothy was a young man who was struggling. And I know that we go through trials. I know that we have hard times. I personally need the grace of God and the strength of God in my own life. And so I just want to ask you to consider how might the Lord be trying to guide your thinking this morning? How might the Lord be speaking to you through what he has said to Timothy in his holy word. Where do you need strength? We all need strength. It's just a matter of where. Is it to be learned from the teacher or from the soldier or from the athlete or from the farmer? Paul closes by saying, consider what I've said. And so that's what we want to do now. Let's pray together. Lord, we do need your strength, God. We need your grace. Um, Lord, you have called us to a similar ministry to that of Timothy, Lord, one where we are to carry the baton of the Christian faith. Father, make us faithful. Make our backs strong, Lord. We are not strong in and of ourselves. We cannot do this in and of ourselves, God, which is why you tell us to be strengthened by you. Lord, thank you that you have given us clear directions on what we are to do, that we are to invest in younger generations. Lord, that we are to suffer as a good soldier and that we are to set our perspective vertically on you as a soldier does to the one who's enlisted him. Father, thank you that you have called us to have an athletic mindset of discipline and one of submission and obedience to the rules of your word. Lord, we thank you for the analogy of the farmer, that we must be workers, God. So, Lord, would you make us workers? Lord, give us strength to not be lazy. Lord, what a passage we have considered this morning. God, we, again, do not have the strength to do this, so would you give us the grace that is in Christ Jesus to be able to be faithful as we desire to live this life for your glory. God, and as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants through whom the Lord used. God, would that be our perspective as we labor for you? In Jesus' name, amen.